0: Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Well, flip with me in your Bibles over to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And the irony is not going to be lost uh, today in that David asked the Lord in this passage if he can build the Lord a house and God says no. And so there's a little bit of irony here but it doesn't really apply to us. It's a totally different scenario but I don't think I didn't laugh a little bit this week in prepping this knowing we were talking about uh, this home campaign as well. So 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, We uh, honestly can't think of a better passage for us to look at in this time uh, that we're living in in this crazy 2020. This is one of the most significant passages in all of the Old Testament. If you were to pull out a handful of passages in the Old Testament, really in all the Bible, this is one of the most critical and essential passages in all the Bible. And yet, my guess is most of you have probably never been taught 2 Samuel chapter 7. You've never had had it unpacked for you. And some of you may be thinking, man, Jeff, I'm kind of more of a New Testament guy. Like, I don't know if I want to get bogged down in all the Old Testament stuff. Um, but the reality is you can't understand what the Gospels teach if you don't understand 2 Samuel chapter 7. You can't fully understand uh, the, the blessing we have in Christ that is unpacked in the New Testament and all the texts of the New Testament if you don't understand 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so uh, my hope is, and I think it, it's possible that this could be the case, that by the end of uh, this lesson, as we look at this and as, you, as we dive into this text, that, and you just be scratching your head saying, man, why has no one shown me how good this is before now? And so we'll want to jump in there. And, and the reality is what we see in this is that our confidence comes from understanding the plans and the promises of God. That, that our confidence as believers ought to come from our, our understanding of the plans and the promises of God and the fact that he will see them through. And so we're going to look at this Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It says, now when the king had lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all His surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, "See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent." And David said to the king, "Go, do all that is in your your heart, for the Lord is with you." I love the way this starts. David's finally established as king. Last. Uh, If you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 6, we saw that David wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant home. He wanted to bring it back to Israel. It had been neglected, and that was the place where God would descend between the the cherubim on top of the Ark of the Covenant, and it's where the people would go out and meet with the Lord, and and his presence would be there, And, and so they would have this relational aspect of the Lord, and yet this Ark had set out in the middle of nowhere, neglected during the reign of Saul, because Saul was spiritually just negligent. And so David had gone out and rescued it and brought it back, and he brought it back to Jerusalem, and they had this huge party, and they uh, celebrated, had a barbecue through a big feast, and David blessed them and sent them all home to celebrate. And so there's this great time. And so now David's uh, had a little bit further in his kingdom. He's rested. It says he's rested from his enemies, meaning he's not having to fight any more wars. There's no battles going on right now. And so David, maybe he's sitting up on his balcony with his bud, Nathan, and Nathan's kind of his friend, his counselor, his confidant, and, and a prophet. And they're sitting there and they're looking out over things. And, and you can almost picture, uh, you know, maybe they're, they're raising a glass together and you look out. And David sees the tent where the Ark of the Covenant stays. And David looks and goes, Man, I'm living in this plush house. Like I'm living in a palace, but God's Ark of the Covenant is out there in this tent. Now, the tent he's referring to is, is centuries old, right? It was a tent that they drugged through the wilderness, a tent that probably was tattered and dusty and dirty and probably coming apart and needed to be stitched together, back together in different places. And David looks and goes, man, I'm in this great house. God's ark is in this tent. Why don't I build him a house of worship that'll last forever, that can be a place that we can look up to and respect? And so Nathan thinks that's a great idea. And so uh, they head to bed thinking things look pretty good. But verse four, uh, God's gonna intervene and has a little bit of a different plan for him. Verse four, it says, but that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt until this day. For I have been moving about in a tent with my dwelling in all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word to any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel? Saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore... Thus, says, "'Thus you shall say to my servant David, "'Thus says the Lord of hosts, "'I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, and you should be, "'so that you should be prince over my people Israel. "'And I have been with you, wherever your enemies have, have uh, went "'and have cut off all your enemies from before you. "'And I will make you a great name, "'like a name of the great ones of the earth. "'And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, "'and I will plant them so that they may dwell "'in their own place and not be disturbed anymore.'" And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, for from that time I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a son. I mean, I will be to him a father, and he shall be my son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. And as I, took it, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you, but your house and your kingdom shall be sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now David's intent here is good, isn't it? His heart's in the right place. He he knows that, that only as, as the people who are situated under the rule of God and the reign of God are the people going to go. And so he wants to build a house to make sure that God is always in the center of their worship and the center of their minds, and that they don't lose sight of him, that he wants to, to make this a, a priority because he knows that God should always be at the center of their lives. And yet God intervenes here and he steps into uh, this deal and, and he wants them to know something really important. It's kind of funny. There's a little bit of, I think, humor intended here where God steps in and goes, Dave, like, are you going to make me a house of cedar? Have I ever asked anyone to build me a house? Like, you understand I made all the stuff you would make the house of, right? Like, I didn't just make cedar planks. I literally invented cedar. Like, I made the trees. All this was my idea. And so you're just going to cut down stuff I created and make me a a little place. Do I really need that? And so I think there's some humor here in terms of what God's trying to say. But you also, see, you also see some of God's character here. You see kind of this incarnational principle that God likes to be with his people? One of the things God says is, in, in all the Israelites' travels, they were always in tents. And you know what? I was in a tent right there with Him, because I wanted to be with my people. And he reminds them of the kind of God that he is. He says, in all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, if they're gonna be in tents, I'll be in a tent. What he's saying is, my broken, messed up people that... that took all these sideways, crazy, windy journeys to get anywhere in the world, I was right there with him. And the tent symbolized my presence with them that I was willing to go with him. And then David, and then God really just flips the script on David, right? He goes, uh, you want to build me a house, how about I build you a house? And he just turns everything around. And David thought he was going to do something nice for God, but God always is going to operate in grace. And so God starts off, and he says, no, I'm the one who builds the house of salvation. I'm the giver. You're the recipient. You need to understand the way this relationship flows. And so, first of all, in uh, in verses 8 and 9, God reminds David of all the grace that he's already received. He said, David, when you were wandering around following after the sheep, I plucked you up out of the pasture and I made you a prince over Israel. This was my idea. It was my initiative. It was my my thing to do to, to grab you and to make you a prince. Now, it's interesting he also calls him a prince, not king, right? But we know him as King David. Well, the reason he calls him prince is, who is Israel's true king? God's king. And so David is a prince under God, representing that as a servant to people. You notice he says to Nathan, he says, Nathan, tell my servant David. Now, that's a title of honor, but it's also reminding David, hey, I'm the king over all kings. I'm the Lord, over all Lord. You're my servant. You're my prince. You come underneath me. And so he reminds David of all the good he's done. He said, look, in all these things, like I've taken care of you. I've run, run out your enemies. I've situated you on a throne. I've given you rest from from battle. I've provided for you all the things that you have. So he points back to the grace David's already received. And then he turns in the next verses and he points to the grace David's going to receive, the future grace that David will have. He says in verse 11, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And don't you love that? David's sitting around on the, uh, on the balcony with Nathan going, hey, why don't, I, why don't I build God a house? And God interrupts and goes, time out just a second. Uh, how about I make you a house instead? And he's going to flip it around. Now there's a little bit of play on word here, words here because house can have a couple different definitions, right? House can be a physical structure. It can be bricks and mortar. Uh, But a house can also be a a line, a a line of descendants, a lineage. It it can also be a dynasty. And what God says is, you wanted to build me this little bricks and mortar house, but I'm going to make you great, and I'm going to give you a dynasty that's never going to end, that's going to last forever. God always insists upon grace. What he's saying to David is, "I I want to make sure you understand which way the river flows. I am the source of good, and you're downstream. And we're always downstream from the grace of God, but isn't that good news? that we don't have to be the source of good in the world, but God is source of good, and everything flows downstream to us. And so all we have to do is just catch the wave and kind of ride it and stay in it because we get to enjoy the goodness that God provides for us. And so God is going to do give David a great name and a great lineage. Verses 12 to 16, he's gonna repeat two different words three times each. First, he says, I'm going to establish you, meaning I'm gonna set you in a place that is not going to be disturbed. I'm going to give you a place of permanence. You're going to be established. And how much of our world is fighting to try to establish ourselves? How much of our day is just trying to pay off our mortgage so we don't have to stress about our house and make sure that we've got a job that has enough security that we can't be rocked and have to leave uh, the, the, so much of our clamoring uh, even on social media, has been, I want to be recognized so I've got, I've got a place I want everyone to know where, where I fit in the world and what I do for the and I think so much of our world is built around me trying to establish my own identity and my own place in the world and yet God just says to David three times I will establish you I'll establish you you'll be established because I will take care of you and then there's another word he repeats the second is forever I will establish you forever meaning uh, that when I establish you and you're not on shaky ground. You're not going to waver. You're not going to fall. And so I will establish the throne of David forever, he says. Now, let me ask you this. Uh, there's also this, a little bit of tension here because you think forever, and we know the reality, right? Did David's descendants stay on the throne forever? no. It went for several centuries. They had a good run, but eventually it petered out. And they were no longer on the throne. And so there, there ought to be a little bit of tension there, which is why I think God was also realistic. You notice what uh, what God said in uh, here in the passage where he says, uh, but when he departs or when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of men. Saying, I, I know your descendants are not going to be perfect. I mean, you're, you're going to blow it. Your kids are going to blow it and their kids are going to blow it. It's going to get worse and it's going to get worse. Um, and yet, God says, when that happens, I will have to discipline them. So how well did David's descendants do? In many ways, they were a tiny nation, and yet they reigned over a whole region for a long amount of time. And in that, they had a pretty good run. They had a pretty remarkable run, but here's what we know. David, in just a few chapters, is going to have his Bathsheba moment, right? Solomon has hundreds of Bathsheba moments. As you get into the descendants, as they follow through the line, you just see it tends to get worse and worse and worse. And they begin to split. The nation goes to civil war. They begin to get divided. And it's not too long before they're taken off into exile. And there's no one here on the throne. So what happened? Does that mean God's promises failed? Does that mean that God's uh, his promise to establish them on the throne forever didn't, didn't come to pass? Well, the Israelites honestly are left wondering. It's a question that they begin to have, and you look at the Psalms, you look at the prophets, you look as things begin to move forward that they begin to look back and go, "Well, how, do you, how is God's promise going to be fulfilled? How, how is this going to happen? Did God abandon us? Has He has He ditched us?" And we're going to see that He that He hasn't, but we're going to need to understand how to understand this passage clearly. So go back just a minute when He says, because there's a couple important points I want to mention here in verse 14. God says to David, I will be to your son, I will be to him a father, and he shall be as my son. The saying is there's a relationship here. There's relationship, and as even though he's the son of David, he'll also be the son of the Most High. Even though he's the son of you by, by the flesh, he's going to be the, my son by choice. And so you see that your son will also be my son. But he also says, I will never withdraw my steadfast love from him. Steadfast love, there, there's a special word there that's called that's Hesed. And it's a covenant word. It's a word that means God's covenant promise that he will never withdraw his love from you. And so when he, when he says that, that I will never withdraw my hesed or my steadfast love, my, my loyal love, my grace from you, he's saying, I will always be there for you and I will never depart. Now, here's what's important. As we, as we begin to think about this, God's promise won't fail, but we've got to understand this text rightly. And in some ways, there's, there's kind of a dual, under, a dual meaning that we see here. And so there's an immediate meaning and then there's an ultimate meaning. And what you see is the prophecy that God's making about his grace to Solomon projects through Solomon all the way to Jesus. And so maybe think of it this way. Think of it like when you drive from here and you head out to Colorado. um, Man, don't you want to go? Like I say that, and I'm like, oh, could I go soon? But you're heading out through the panhandle and it's really flat, right? And so you get out there and everything's flat and everything's flat. And then you get to a certain point and you see something start rising up out of the ground off in the distance. And you see, you see the mountains start to rise. And, and immediately you think, oh, we're almost there, right? And then how long does it take to still get there? you 're still hours away, and so those mountains that everything looks like're right in front of you still take hours to get there, and then they also look like there may be one or two big peaks there in the mountains, and then you get there a little close and you realize man there 's multiple peaks that are on uh, on display here, and some of them are hundreds of miles apart, and so the distance is sometimes hard to see when you 're far away that 's what 's happening here is you look at this text and uh, David and, and everyone and the Israelites looked at that and said well god i don 't understand you said that that You said that David's line would never end, and yet it looks as though it's ended. And what God says is, just wait, there's one that's coming. And this becomes the source of messianic hope, that they begin to look for a Messiah that's, that's to come. And so they begin to cry out. It's why they're asking, are you the one that is to come? Because they know that eventually God's promises have to be fulfilled. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for goodness and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Friends, can I tell you that verse is not about the American dream of prosperity, health, and wealth. That verse is not about your dating life. I hate to tell you. Like it doesn't, you know, God, God you can't take this verse and just apply it to your dating life and go, oh, God's gonna drop me, uh, you know, a, a, a drop-dead gorgeous model that's as, uh, as nice as, and servant-hearted as uh, Mother Teresa. And, like you can't just drum up all this stuff and apply this verse however you want to 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 whatever scenario you want. It's not about your income. It's not necessarily about uh, your, your station in life. You can't take it and apply it there. It's about the promises that God has given to be fulfilled through Jesus and all that we have in him. That's what this verse is about. And so so often you'll see this one taken out of context, but here's what you need to understand. God in his covenants is committing himself to bring a forever kingdom through the lineage of David's descendants. He says, David may lie down in death, but God will raise up his seed. Meaning there's no way God, uh, there's nothing that can get in the way of God's plan. Verses, Verses 12 and 13, death cannot destroy it. Verse 14 and 15, sin cannot block it. Verse 16, time cannot exhaust it. There's nothing you can do to thwart the plan of God. You notice in this passage when I was reading, did you notice how many times it says, I will? Over and over and over, it just sounds redundant. Where God just says, "Uh, I took you up. I've been with you. I've cut off your enemies. I will make you a great name. I will appoint a place. I'll plant a people. I'll give you rest. I will make you a house. I will establish your kingdom. I will establish your throne. I will be to him as Father. I will discipline him. I will never take my steadfast love from him. Um, Who's the one driving the action? Is it confusing at all? No, right? I mean, God just says, Let me just beat you over the head with this. Make sure you get it. Let me make, like, I'm gonna beat this horse dead. Make sure you understand. I'm the one that's going to do this. All this depends on me. My promise is inevitable and nothing's going to get in my way. That's good news for us, isn't it? That the promises of God are not dependent on our strength, on our ingenuity, on our wisdom, on our goodness, but they're built on the character and the person of God. See, what we need to understand here is the importance of covenant. Covenant is one of the most overlooked treasures in our life. It would be like finding out that this you know, box of, um, baseball cards that your dad gave you years ago that's been sitting neglected in your attic and you didn't even realize was there and one day you realize all of a sudden this thing's worth hundreds of thousands of dollars and you, you, didn't even, you weren't even aware that it was of any value at all and all of a sudden you realize, man, this would pay off all my debts and take care of all my needs, this one little box. That's what covenant does for you. You need to understand that it's worth far more than, uh, than any earthly treasure we could ever have. But when you understand covenant, it unlocks so much of our lives. So in Old Testament times, the way they agreed to a covenant was what they called cutting a covenant. And what they did by covenant covenant, you saw it with Abraham and when God formed the Abrahamic covenant. And they actually, covenant means it's, it's a promise or commitment that you make. And in God's covenant with Abraham, you saw this, a picture of this. And what they would do in those days was they would actually take an animal and they would cut it into pieces and they'd scatter it on the ground. And they would say, uh, they would then, both parties in the covenant would walk through the pieces that are there on the ground and say, if I do not keep my end of the covenant, then may it be done to me as was done to this animal. So it was a pretty serious, solemn event, right? What did God do with Abraham? Just before, God took Abraham up and explained to him, I've got this covenant, this promise of what I'm going to do for you. And we're gonna seal a covenant. We're gonna cut a covenant together. And he cuts the animal and he scatters it on the ground. And just before Abraham and God walked through together, it says, God put Abraham to sleep. And a deep sleep fell on him in a deep darkness. And then God himself, in, in, in symbolic form, walked through the covenant. What's the symbol there? Abraham, all you're going to do is rest. It's all on me. I'm the only one on the hook here, and I will make sure this covenant comes to pass. I will cut the covenant with me on the hook, you resting. It's grace, right? This doesn't depend upon you. This depends upon me, upon my strength, upon my holiness, upon my character. And God walks through and seals the covenant. So you need to understand that when, uh, when, David, when God comes to David and says, uh, at the end of the day, it isn't going to say, David built me a house. It's going to say, God built David a house, right? It's the same principle. God's saying to David, this does not depend upon you. Your descendants, your lineage, the promises, everything that I've said is going to happen to you doesn't depend upon you. It depends upon me. I am the builder of your house. You're the recipient. Of my grace. Everything runs downstream from the source to the ones who ride the wave of God's grace. It all rests on God's work and not ours. In each case, in the covenants, God initiates and God guarantees the fulfillment of the covenant. It'd be worth your time to go back and study the covenant. The covenants. You need to know the Edenic covenant, or the covenant with God made with Adam, that you'll go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and, and subdue it. That you're vice regents with God, called to lead in this world, and, and that's your role. Uh, the Noahic covenant that God promised, I will never destroy an earth like this, uh, destroy the earth like this again. And so you get to uh, the early chapters of Genesis, and God promises and gives a sign that He would never do so. What's the sign? It's a rainbow, right? You get to Genesis 12, Genesis 15, you see the Abrahamic covenant. God calls out Abraham and says, you will be to me a people. I will bless you. And even though you're this old man and you're married to an old woman, you're going to have descendants that are going to outnumber the stars of the heavens. And and through your descendants, there's going to be a blessing that goes out to all the earth. And I will give them a land, and I will give them a lineage, and I I will give them blessings. And so there's land, seed, and blessing given to Abraham. And God cuts the covenant with Abraham and says, this will be so for your people. Those descendants of Abraham come. And you get to, uh, you get to Exodus 19 to 23, and you get the Mosaic covenant. God makes a covenant with Moses, and he gives them the law. And he says that someday so, the that, that, that king of David and, and the rise and the fall of the nation will happen as you obey the law or disobey the law. And so there's blessings and curses based on how you, how you live within this. But the ultimate fulfillment of this, Jesus, is Jesus. He says, I didn't come to abolish that. I came to fulfill the law. Jesus himself is going to be the only one that can measure up to the standard of the Mosaic law. Any of us all kept the Ten Commandments all the time? You know, be careful. I'll go talk to your mom and daddy. And we'll find out, right? Um, because I could tell you about my kids, and my mom and dad could tell you about me. And that's the way it is. We, we all trip and fall. We all stumble. We're all a line of sinners until you get to Jesus. And then there's the New Covenant. You go to Jeremiah 31, 32, 33. You go to Ezekiel 36, 37. And you see the blessing of the New Covenant. And the New Covenant is a promise. And all of these build upon one another. And so you get the Abrahamic sets of foundation that God's going to create a people and that they're going to be a blessing to all the nations. Moses uh, tells you what, kind of the criteria by which uh, these blessings will be, will be ushered in. You get to David and it says there will be one of the descendants of David that will be on the throne. And that's 2 Samuel 7, right? Then you get to the new covenant, and the new covenant is really the fulfillment of all the others. As they pile up and as they build, uh, the new covenant promises that God says uh, he will set a, send a, create a new covenant, and it will all be entered in through Jesus. And through that new covenant, what we see is that Jeremiah doesn't spell out exactly how it's going to happen, but we start to see these glimpses of Jesus to come. That, that God's going to turn the hearts of his people back to him, and he's going to do it, through some, someone who would come and bring this new covenant. Now, I want to show you why this is so important for us. Turn with me to the New Testament. Look at Matthew chapter 1. I want to share with you a few, few passages here, and I want you to just understand how essential this is to your, your understanding of the Bible. Matthew chapter 1, very first book, very first verse in the New Testament, right? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's how it starts. It's saying Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of these covenants. You notice that it, who came first, David or Abraham, biblically, chronologically? Abraham. Which one comes first here? David. Because God wants you to understand that this is the one who is coming. And so uh, Matthew, as he's writing this book to Jews, wanted them to understand Jesus Christ, he's putting a neon lights. This is the one that's the king that's, that's in the line of David and this is the one through whom the blessings of Abraham are gonna to come to the world. He's highlighting. Go uh, just a little further over, Matthew 1.20. Here you got the birth of Jesus was fulfilled. Uh, did you know angels know about this stuff? Right? Look at verse 20. It says, As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of who? Son of David. Jesus' earthly parents, Mary and Joseph. Joseph was the son of David. Joseph was one in line to be a king, but he was a blue-collar worker, a carpenter. But he ends up being more honored than he would have even been as king, because through his line comes Jesus. And so you have this genealogy in Matthew that's there. Go to Luke one. You skip over just a little further. In Luke chapter one, you get to verse twenty-six. You're going to get this uh, promise, and you get another angel coming to talk. And this angel is going to speak to Mary. Verse uh, 126 says, The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he said to her, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled, trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. He will call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called a son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him a throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, that's Israel, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. He's quoting 2 Samuel 7. Do you catch how many of the phrases come straight out of 2 Samuel 7? That he will be a son of the Most High, he will be a throne that will last forever, he will be a son of David, who's also a son of God. And so the angel is saying to Mary, "This is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Um, he's both the Son of the Most High and the Son of David. This is perfect union between divinity and humanity. This is who Jesus is. He's the fulfillment of the promises that came to David. Romans one, you start and get in the New Testament. you go, "Deep theology in Romans. How does it begin? Romans chapter one begins, Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Paul begins the most theological treatise in the Bible and says, this guy was a descendant of David. He's a fulfillment of all that was promised beforehand. Second Timothy 2. You think this is disconnected from life and from the Kind of the reality of the struggles that we have day to day. Um, if you go to Second Timothy, two, look at verse, um, look at verse eight. Paul's writing to this younger pastor Timothy who's going through some hard times. Says, "Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore." I endure everything for the sake of the elect because of the, they, so that they may obtain the salvation, salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul's saying the grounds on which I endure hardship in the world is the promise of God that was given to David in the way that Jesus has fulfilled that. That's what gives me strength to face even today, is that God promises these good things and he lives them out and his, his plans continue to flourish. Let's go to Revelation I wanna give you just two more. Revelation 5, you get this passage and it's got this symbolism about the seals and really the heartbeat is, uh, of it is who's going to be the one that can unpack the good blessings that God's eventually gonna give? That he's going to eradicate evil and he's going to do, uh, do away with sin and, and, and do away with evil in the earth. He's gonna bring a, a kingdom of equity and righteousness and justice. Who, who is the one that's able to do that? And you get in verse uh, four and John who's seeing this says, no one on earth, were, no one, I'm sorry, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. Meaning, this is what happens when you don't, when you when you start to fear that God's plans can get worked out, right? That if if you start to panic and you start to get nervous and say, man, maybe God can't do this. Maybe all those promises aren't gonna come true. Maybe heaven's not gonna be what I thought it was gonna be. Maybe God's reign is not really gonna come. You're gonna do this. You're gonna weep loudly. You see people doing this in 2020, by the way? They start to panic. They start to get nervous. Maybe God's not in charge. Maybe all those things that that I've trusted all these years aren't gonna come to fruition. Uh, Maybe I'm not as comfortable and confident in God as I thought I was and begin to panic you begin to weep loudly verse 5 and one of the elders said to me weep no more behold the lion of the tribe of judah the root of david has conquered and he can open the scrolls see this is the one that can bring to fruition a kingdom of equity justice and righteousness revelation 22 last one you get to uh, this passage here at the end and Jesus himself is going to talk. And it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the, for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let him who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. See, it's all of God, right? We... He's going to meet all of our needs. The water of life, that which nourishes us, that's which gives us life, that's which gives us strength. He says, all you have to do is come, and he will give you water of life without price, meaning you don't have to pay for it, you can't pay for it. You're like Abraham, you're going to sleep while Jesus walk, I mean, while, while God walks through, the, through the, the pieces. You're going to be like David, you're going to want to build a house, and God's going to say, you can't build a house, but I'll build one for you. You're going to come and say, I'm thirsty, I want water, and he says, you can't pay for it, it's free, it's of my grace, but here it is. All you have to do is come. Friends, is that good news? And for the sake of time, I'm not going to run through the rest of this, but you look at David's prayer. David comes to the end of that passage in 2 Samuel 7, and he begins and he just says, who am I? Who am I that you would pour out such grace on me? Who am I that you would pour out such promises upon me? And he says, there is certainly none like you. God, there's no one like you. And he trusts him and he worships. And then he does the thing that that we need to do. You want to know how to apply this passage? We need to do what David did. I wish we had more time to walk here. One guy says that that prayer pleads promises. David pleads the promises of God. He says, God, the things which you've promised, will you make them happen? Things that, that that you've told me you will do Uh, you've given me courage, he says in in those verses. You've given me courage to even pray because of the promises that you've given me. And so, God, I'm gonna hold on to these promises and I'm just gonna plead with you and beg with you that you're gonna make them a reality in my life. And so he does that, but he does it with an outlook that says, God, who am I? I didn't deserve this. I didn't deserve all the goodness, but only because there's none like you who loves and pours out his grace. Friends, we're recipients of that grace. We, The promises that were given to David we get grafted in, and we get to enjoy those promises as well. And so they are, they are ours uh, to enjoy in one day. Um, chapter 8, the whole, the whole tale of chapter 8, it just says, David defeated his enemies. David defeated his enemies. The Lord was with him to help him, and he reigned in righteousness and justice. Okay? That's a snippet. Da- David was like one grain of sand on the earth compared to the greatness of Jesus' kingdom. He, he's a foreshadowing. You get a taste of it, a glimpse of it in David. In Jesus, we get the real deal, and one day we'll get to enjoy it. Let me pray for us, Heavenly Father. I pray and just ask that you would, um, would you help us to stand in awe of your goodness, as David did. That we would say, "Who am I?" That we would say, "There's none like you." That that would cause our hearts to, uh, the affections of our hearts to worship you, to trust you, Father. In uh, this crazy time that we're in, would you just give us confidence because of your plans and your promises that. The world is not thrown up for grabs, but you are very much working out your plan, and that we can rest in that. Father, give us joy in your grace even now. Father, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.